to introduce our speaker, Dr. Russ White. Russ was born into missions. His father was a physician, and they were missionaries in the Congo through some of the difficult days in that country. Russ is a cardiovascular thoracic surgeon and serves at Tenwick Hospital with World Gospel Mission. Tenwick is one of the largest mission hospitals in Africa, and it's been exciting to see the development there, especially in surgery, uh, where Russ provides leadership. They're one of the few hospitals of any that I know in Africa that's actually doing uh, cardiovascular surgery, replacing valves. Uh, they're very involved in research, and Russ has been leading that into esophageal cancer. I was asking him before we started, while wow, speaking in a large auditorium like this, he said, well, when, I, when he spoke at the surgery academy, it was bigger. Uh, even a bigger room than this, as he shared his research. They've actually done more esophageal splints at Tenwick than any place in the whole world dealing with that issue. Besides his academic uh, abilities, he's still an assistant professor at Brown Univ Medical School, the university there. Uh, he has a wonderful heart and passion for ministry, and God's blessed him with great speaking and musical skills. So it's a joy to welcome here tonight, uh, Russ, to see how God is going to speak through you to us. Thank you. Thanks, Excuse me, give me that stand. Well, it's a real joy and a pleasure, and I sincerely count it as a pleasure to be with you today. And I thank you truly for the opportunity to be here and to share with you what the Lord has put on my heart tonight. Um, it's a great pleasure. This is my second time at this conference. I was here in 2006 and really felt God moving and leading and saw what he was doing through so many young people and a few older people as well and felt uh, that this was a wonderful place to share what God has for his people in the area of medical missions. The title I've given tonight uh, to this presentation is Take the Hill, Actively Pursuing God's Will. Take the Hill, Actively Pursuing God's Will, Lessons from Saul and Jonathan. And we're going to be looking a little into the Old Testament in a moment. I spend about 10 to 15 percent of my time at Brown University, which is shown here. That's a big medical center out east. But I spend the majority of my time in Kenya, East Africa, at this place, at Tenwick Hospital. This is a place that has grown considerably over recent years, where God is still doing tremendous work. We are seeing the numbers of patients increasing every year. We're seeing the teaching programs grow every year. Uh, we're seeing people who've been trained at Tenwick moving out into all aspects and areas of East Africa. But the spiritual ministry at Tenwick remains the same. We are doing a tremendous amount of work, but for the past 50 years we've been saying we treat and Jesus heals. And we still believe that to be the case today. Despite all the work and all the things going on, it is Jesus that is making the difference. As we work very hard to fix bodies and pray very hard as God is fixing souls. The teaching programs at Tenwick are growing every day. We started with a handful of interns many years ago. We have a nursing school as well, training nurses. That program has grown now 
in our training program to where we're training 16 new interns every year, and we have a total of about 25 residents in training in the areas of family practice and surgery when you put our interns and residents all together. It continues to grow every year, uh, and we thank the Lord for that. I mentioned in an earlier session we have 25 residents. We have 14 housing units for those residents, which creates a bit of a problem at times. But the Lord is gracious and is providing for that as we really feel that the future of medical missions is involved in training and building capacity and empowering our brothers and sisters in Africa to share the gospel through their work in medicine. I work at Tenwick Hospital uh, with World Gospel Mission, where I'm a full-time missionary with that organization. Tonight we're going to look into the Old Testament a little bit. We're going to look at a lesson from the books of 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and we're going to see what lessons we can draw from the lives of Saul and Jonathan, and then I'm going to share with you some ways that I believe God is teaching us today and has taught me on the mission field in this area. So if we set the scene first looking at Saul, Saul, his story actually begins much earlier, way back in chapter 8, when Israel asks for a king. And if you'll remember, God somewhat reluctantly agrees to do this and give them a king. And of course they pick the tallest and the handsomest and the, 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 uh, the best looking of the bunch. God reveals to Samuel that the one he chooses will deliver his people from the Philistines. And Saul is anointed king. And then Samuel gives him a very clear instruction. He tells him to go to Gilgal and to wait there for seven days. He says, I will come down and sacrifice to you before God, but you must wait seven days, and then you will defeat the Philistines. And then we finally come to chapter 13, and Saul has raised an army of 3,000 men. And he attacks the Philistines and feels pretty good about what he's done. And then the Philistines respond in chapter 13 and verse 5, and they raise their own army. Saul has 3,000 men. The Philistines raise an army of 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers, and men as numerous as the sand on the seashore, is how it reads. Men as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And so Israel responds in heroic fashion in verses 6 and 7. It says they hid in caves and thickets and pits and cisterns. Now, we have pits and cisterns in Kenya where I live, and I think those are euphemistic words for toilets is what I really think is going on here. So the men of Israel are hiding in pit latrines because the enemy is far bigger than they could ever manage. And there is no way in the world that they can defeat this enemy. And so the men of Israel start running away. And 3,000 goes to 2,000 and goes to 1,000. And the men are leaving every day. And the seventh day comes and Samuel hasn't come. And Saul says, I better do something or I'm going to lose everybody. And so he sacrifices to the Lord. 
And it seems very shortly after he finishes, Samuel appears. And he says, Saul, what have you done? Didn't you listen to me? Didn't you hear what I told you? What have you done? Saul's men are quaking in fear for seven days, and Saul decides, I have to take matters into my own hands. And he acts. And Samuel says to him, You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You acted foolishly. If you had kept the command... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and of course that will be David, and has appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Saul stepped out in his own judgment and failed miserably. It's interesting that he does the same thing again in chapter 15. He acts again. And that's when the famous verse comes through, to obey is better than sacrifice Saul. And Saul dies. Saul actively pursued God's will. So I'd like to ask you, do you ever actively pursue God's will the way Saul did? (laughs) Do you ever do something that is in direct contrast, direct disobedience to what God has said, and you ask God to bless it somehow? You think that's going to work? So I've had young people come to me and say, you know, I've met this person, they're a wonderful person, I love them so much, they're, they're beautiful, they're intelligent, they're gifted, they, they have a heart for the poor, they, they love to do good things. There's just one small problem. They're, they're not a Christian. But other than that, they're wonderful. And so I'm praying if God wants me to marry them or not. And I say, what kind of a stupid prayer is that? God does not want to hear that prayer. And they say, oh, no, no, God wants to hear all my prayers. No, he doesn't. (laughs) You don't need to pray that prayer. God has already told you in his scripture. And when you go out and act in direct disobedience to God's will and ask him to bless you, you're going to fail miserably. Do we ever actively seek God's will in this way? Or do we ever not do what we know to be God's will. I had a Kenyan brother talk to me one day and said, you know, this other friend has really hurt me. They've offended me. They've insulted me. I've been deeply hurt by them. And now this person has come and asked me to forgive them. And so I'm praying whether or not God wants me to forgive them. I said, that's the dumbest prayer I've ever heard. You should not be praying that prayer. They say, oh, no, no, God wants to hear all my prayers. No, he does not. He doesn't want to hear that prayer. He's already made his will clear that when your brother asks you to forgive him, he says, if you have something against your brother, leave your offering at the altar and go make it right. God doesn't want to hear that prayer. He wants you to make it right. When God has made his will clear, There's no reason to pray and ask his will. You may want to pray and say, Lord, can you please help me to do what I know to be your will, but which I really don't want to do. I think God wants to hear that prayer. 
and appreciates that honesty of heart when we approach him in that way. And then we come to Jonathan in chapter 14. The situation for the army of Israel is not very good. In all of Israel, only Saul and Jonathan have a sword or a spear. Nobody else. And they're facing an army more than the sands on the seashore. There is no way in the world they can win this fight. The clear impression is that all Israel is in fear of the Philistines. And where is Saul? Saul is under a pomegranate tree somewhere. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. I suspect it means he's sitting out there drinking lemonade and saying, Lord, is, <laughs> what can be done? <laughs> There's nothing that can be done. We cannot win this fight. I have no idea what to do anymore. And Jonathan sees that they are outnumbered, vastly outnumbered. And without any evidence in Scripture that God tells him to do this, he suggests to his armor-bearer that they go climb that hill and defeat all those Philistines. Jonathan sees a very difficult situation, but one in which God has clearly expressed his will that Israel will be victorious. He sees a situation in which the numbers don't matter. God has said it in clear contrast to Saul, who saw the numbers and was terrified and thought it was impossible. In fact, Saul concluded that he better act quickly in direct disobedience to God before the odds got worse. And Jonathan saw a situation in which God could use Jonathan's abilities to bring clear victory from God. Because when Jonathan triumphed, it was clear that this was a victory from and for God. And then Jonathan does something very interesting in verse 8 of chapter 14. He says to his armor-bearer, Come then, we'll cross over toward those men and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, we'll climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So do you see what Jonathan is doing here? He is stating that to the best of his understanding, at that time and at that place, he believes this is something God wants him to do. He's not waiting for a direct message from God. He's not waiting for a lightning bolt or the handwriting on the wall or a telegram from God that says, go and take that hill. Rather, he is stepping out in faith to actively seek God's will. He says, I believe that this is God's will from all I can tell. And I'm going to move in that direction, trusting that God will adjust my path if I'm misdirected. He leaves room for God to redirect him. You might say, oh, that's sort of like Gideon putting out the fleece, isn't it? No, it's not. It's very different from Gideon putting out the fleece. Gideon, you see, the angel of God came to Gideon and said, I want you to go defeat those people now. 
And Gideon said, well, I'm not really sure if it's God's will. This is the angel of the Lord, spoke directly to him face to face. So many of us say, God, if you'd only tell me what to do, I would do it. Have you ever said that? I just don't know what to do. If you just tell me, I would do it. Well, Gideon was told face to face, and then he said, well, let me pray about that a little bit. Let me put out the fleece and see if it turns wet. Which it, and then he, Let me see if it stays dry. He kept testing God. Gideon's fleece was not a sign of him trusting God. It was a sign of mistrust. And it was a sign that despite his mistrust, God would be gracious and bring victory to him. Jonathan, on the other hand, is very different than Gideon. Here, the story is completely different. Jonathan is excited and sees a great opportunity for God to work through Jonathan and bring about God's stated will for the glory of God. His statements about the response of the Philistine men do not represent fear and mistrust, but rather a humble spirit indicating that he does not want to move ahead of God. And this is clearly an act of faith on Jonathan's part. To use Henry Blackaby's description, he sees where God is working and says, I'm going to join in that work and do it. And so I would say to you that a well-intentioned, prayerfully considered, honest mistake which leaves room for God's redirection is better than accepting the default settings of life. It's better to make a mistake following God with all your heart than it is to sit there in the, the default settings of life. Let's think of an example. Dr. Smith works in anywhere, USA. He's five years out of his residency. He shares that throughout medical school and residency, he felt that perhaps God was calling him to medical missions full-time. This feeling was based on a very clear interest to follow the Great Commission as well as a desire to use his medical skills in an area where they were most needed. And if you have any trouble figuring out where they're most needed, just look at the map of the world. It's not that hard to figure out where the skills of medical people are most needed. Dr. Smith has had several opportunities to step out in faith to full-time medical mission work. Several have really sparked an interest in his heart and soul, but he's never seen a lightning bolt. He's never seen it written out in the sky, Dr. Smith, go to Africa. It's never happened to him. He's never gotten a telegram from God. He's never seen the handwriting on the wall. So he's waited and accepted the default mode of staying in the town where he did his training, and he's working in a satisfying comfortable position. What does actively seeking God not mean? What does this not mean? It does not mean that we should impertinently demand to know God's will. It also does not mean that we should not appropriately wait upon the Lord, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. It does not mean that we should not pursue good works for the, f the future glory of God and for the glory of God wherever we find ourselves here and now. And certainly it does not mean that we should always be living for the future. See, Dr. Smith's not involved in money laundering and prostitution rings. He's not really a bad guy. He does a lot of good. He teaches Sunday school in his local Christian church, and he's on the school board. He tries his best to share his faith with his patients and his staff. Yet in the back of his mind, he always wonders, 
whether he somehow missed the boat in God's will. And so I would say again that we should follow the Lord. What, what does this mean? It means that we should thoughtfully and prayerfully consider what God is calling us to in light of our abilities and talents and desires of our heart. And then, having carefully considered and prayed and waited upon the Lord, we should move in the direction God is calling us to. And we should give room for God to redirect us. Thinking and praying and waiting will take different amounts of time for different people. And I'm not personally all that good at waiting. I want to see what God has and go after it. But I would say again, a well-intentioned, prayerfully considered, honest mistake which leaves room for God's redirection. Now this little vervet monkey is making a big mistake. And I hope he gets redirected before it's too late. But an honest mistake that is prayerfully, thoughtfully considering what God has for us and leaves room for God to redirect us is better than accepting the default settings in life. What was the result for Jonathan? They climbed the hill. They killed 20 men in their first attack. And panic struck the Philistine army and an earthquake hit the area. And the Philistines are in a panic and start striking each other with their swords and they all kill each other. And the Lord, it says in chapter 14 and verse 23, rescued Israel that day. Not Jonathan. Jonathan is a tool used by the Lord in a way which can only be attributed to the Lord. And the Philistines are confused and scattered, and the Lord rescued Israel that day. God used Jonathan's God-led initiative to turn the tide that day in a way that could be only attributed to God's direction. And so if we compare these two men, Saul and Jonathan, we see that Saul stepped out in unbelief, while Jonathan stepped out in faith. Saul saw the numbers and fears, and he decided to take matters into his own hands and failed miserably. Jonathan sees the numbers and trusts in God. And the key verse of that chapter in my mind is where the scripture tells us, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You see, if God is in it and has directed you to it, you cannot fail. Additionally, if we see between Saul and Jonathan, Saul's actions were based on fear and in direct disobedience to God's word through Samuel, while Jonathan's actions are based on faith and God's direct promise through Samuel that he would deliver his people. So what lessons can we learn from this today? I'd like to ask you a few questions. Are you willing to step out in faith when the future is not clear? You say, but who will pay for my student loans? Who will provide for my children? Who will provide for my retirement? I, I have to arrange all these things. When my family first went to Africa in 1992, that's what I used to look like. 
And that's my one son, who was 12 months at the time. He's now 18 years old. He's performing tonight in his debut experience at the Rift Valley Academy as the lead role of his high school musical. I'm not there to see him, but I know he's doing a wonderful job. He went, we went there with a 12-month-old, and I wasn't entirely sure, and my wife surely wasn't entirely sure that this was the best thing. She said, you know, maybe we should wait till our child is a little older. Of course, we had four more children, so that would have made a significant delay. My youngest is five years old right now, and that would have changed things. We said, you know, is this really the best time? And I said... Okay, Lord, I believe you're calling me to missions, but I need to, you know, get some things set up. And I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a veteran missionary on the mission field. I said, you know, I plan to go to the mission field full-time, but I, I want to get some money set aside for retirement. I want to get some money for college funds for my kids. I want to get set up a little in life and get some experience and, and, and understand a bit uh, where I'm going, have some stability, some security. And my friend said, oh, and then you're going to trust God after you do all that. I said, right, right, you get it. That's, that's yeah, that's it. <laughs> he said, do you believe God is calling you to long-term missions in Africa? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, well, then why don't you just go? I said, well, you know, it's not really that simple. There's, you know, there's all those things I just mentioned. They have to be taken care of. He said, Really? You don't think God is big enough to handle those things? I said, well, you know, I mean, if you're going to put it that way, uh, sure, that's like, is it, can he make a rock so big he can't move it? Come on, that's not a fair question to ask. He said, no, it's actually a very fair question. Do you believe God is big enough to take care of those things? And I had to stop and think and was very challenged in my heart and said Okay, Lord, I think we need to go. When I heard then that I was going to go with an organization where I had to raise support, I said, Oh, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. I'll be like a vacuum cleaner salesman, you know. (laughs) There's got to be some other way to do this. I said, I can just stay and work and make enough money and be self-sufficient and an independent missionary. Wouldn't that be great, God? And God said, You don't really understand me well at all, do you? Because I'm not really into independence. I'm into dependence a lot more than that. And I finally had to surrender my will to the Lord and say, I will go, Lord, and I will follow you, and I will do what you ask me to do. They brought me a patient several years ago at Tenwick Hospital. And oh, how I wish I had this tool with me when they brought Chibet in. I do have this tool nowadays. This is an operating rigid bronchoscope for foreign body removals with very nice telescopic sights, and you can really use it well to remove foreign bodies. But when they brought Chibet in quite a few years ago, a four-year-old girl, I didn't have that tool. And they brought this little girl into the emergency department, and I went to see her, and she was barely alive. She was struggling with every breath of life to try to breathe, and it was obvious something was blocking her airway. Her mother hurriedly told me that while she was playing out in a pile of red beans, she started to have trouble breathing. It was immediately obvious what was the problem. We didn't have this tool. We had an, I think it was about an 1842 version of a bronchoscope. It was a metal pipe with a flashlight at the end, and I said, oh, Lord, this is not going to be fun. 
We took this child in. I told the mother, I'm not sure we're going to be able to save your daughter, but we have to try. And we took her into the operating room, and I put this old metal rusty pipe down her throat and looked into utter blackness, and I tried repeatedly to remove this thing, and I could not. Her heart slowed down and stopped, and we took the bronchoscope out and started CPR and got her heart going again, and I put the scope in again. And the same thing happened again. I put in a third time, and the same. I said, this isn't going to work. We cannot get this out. I said, all right, prep her chest. I'm going to wash my hands. We're going to have to open her chest and try to get this thing out. It was way down towards the carina of the trachea. I knew that wasn't going to be a quick place to get to, and I thought, this girl will not survive this. I was standing at the scrub sink washing my hands when God really did speak to me. It's not common, in my life at least. God doesn't speak to me verbally every day. But that day he did, to the point that as I was washing my hands, I looked up, I said, what what do you mean, try again? (laughs) (laughs) Have you not been paying any attention to what's been going on down here? Because this little girl is dying and there's nothing I can do about it. I cannot stop this. And God said, that's right, you can't. But I can't. I can do something about this. So why don't you go back in there and try again, like I told you. I went back in the room. They were starting to prep her. I said, we're going to use the scope again. They all said, you know, we've already tried that. I said, look, I've already had this argument. And (laughs) we're going to do it, all right? They got the scope out. As I walked in the room, I looked on the counter, and here was a ureteral stone basket. I have no idea how it got there because I would have been the only person to use it and I hadn't used it and it was sitting out I said hey that's something we could try (laughs) we've tried everything else and we prayed and put this rusty pipe down her throat again and her heart rate started to drop and her pulse oximeter started to drop and I thought oh here we go Lord and I put this basket blindly into the depths and closed the basket and pulled it out And at the end of this scope was a little red bean in a basket. And her oxygen level started to rise and her heart rate started to come up. And she started to breathe. And the entire operator, by now people had come from all different departments saying, what can we do to help? The whole group started to cheer and yell and clap their hands. And none of them were clapping for me. None of them. One of our anesthetists said, I'm so glad that I could be a part of what God has done today in this little girl's life. And that little girl is alive today and doing well because of what God has done. And it's nothing that the staff at Tenwick did. It's all about what God did. We do a lot of training at Tenwick. There's a young, youngish doctor there named Dr. Carol Spears who works in our Department of Surgery helping to train our interns and residents and students. She happens to be in this audience tonight too, so I have to be careful what I say. She came a few years back as a third-year resident and worked with us for a year. She had a great time, did very well when she 
left, she said, boy, I, you know, I'm going to go back and finish training. I'm going to see what God has for me. And as I talked to her about her future, she said, you know, I think God is calling me to Africa. I really feel strongly he wants me to be there. I love the work at Tenwick Hospital. I feel very comfortable there. I want to be involved in a surgical training program, which we're starting very soon in the future at Tenwick Hospital. Uh, I feel that God wants me overseas. She named about ten things. I said, all right, so what's the problem? What's, what's remaining? She said, well, I, I just haven't heard God speak to me. I said, what do, what do you mean you haven't heard God speak to you? What, what did you just tell me? She said, well, you know, I, I just haven't heard him directly tell me to, to, to be there. I said, well, where are you now? She said, well, I'm in Lexington. I said, all right, so God has called you to Lexington. I mean, you've heard his voice, I assume. He's sent you the telegram. He's written it out. She said, well, no. I said, well, do you think you belong there? She said, no, I don't think so. I said, well, then what are you doing? She said, well, I just I haven't quite heard God. So I called her. She picked up the phone and said, hi, this is Carol. I said, hi, uh, this is God. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm a thoracic surgeon, and most thoracic surgeons think that's true, actually. <laughs> I said, I, I heard you've been wondering, wanting to hear from me. Uh, why don't you get off your can and go over to Africa and work where I've called you? And she said... Okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> She's back in Africa, working now, helping us run the program there at Tenway. Are you willing to step out in faith when the future is not clear? Are you willing to move ahead even though you haven't seen the handwriting on the wall? Are you willing to accept hardship as well as joy? Sometimes hardship comes from your colleagues and friends. Let me tell you a secret that you may not know. Missionaries are not perfect people. And missionaries sometimes hurt each other and cause pain and sorrow. And you have to keep going. You have to keep following the Lord, even when pain and sorrow comes from your own colleagues and when sometimes you cause it to your own colleagues. You see, our perspective is not the same as God's perspective. God doesn't always share our perspective on things. One day at Tenwick, they brought me an x-ray. They said, this patient's in casualty in the emergency department. I looked at that x-ray and said, well, there's something funny in that maxillary sinus area, but you know, it doesn't look too significant. It doesn't look like a major problem. I said, could you give me a, a, a different view? Can you take that? Let me see a lateral view. That's what the lateral view looks like. When you look at it from a slightly different perspective, it looks a little more serious. You see, God's perspective is not always the same as ours. And that patient looked like this, with this arrow sticking out of the front of his head. And so if you see him, if you see this patient, here he is. Here's the picture of him. The arrow coming out the front, it still doesn't look that bad. And here's an intraoperative picture of the arrow coming out. And here's a postoperative picture of that young man after we had a discussion about how he got himself in such a position that somebody wanted to shoot him in the face. And we had a long discussion about his heart 
and his life. God's perspective is not always the same. Are you willing to accept hardship as well as joy? Sometimes hardships come from the evil that opposes us. I've been a little hard on my colleague Carol Spears tonight. I've abused her a little bit. But there's a few things I didn't tell you about Carol's story. When she was at Tenwick, she had a great year of teaching and working and training and learning, working with our residents and our interns, and she was a resident herself and had a wonderful time. Towards the end of her time there, she and a friend decided to take a weekend trip and get away and see the beautiful Rift Valley in Kenya, and they were out having a wonderful time, which is generally a very safe place to be when she and her friend were hijacked and were kidnapped by a group of men with automatic weapons. And she was taken into the jungle and she was assaulted. And they called us to come and get her And when we arrived there and saw what people had done to our friend, we were angry and we were horrified. So when Carol had a little trouble following God's direction back to Africa, it's a little bit understandable what was going on in her mind and her heart and her soul. There was a period of time when we thought Carol was going to have HIV and was going to be pregnant. And those were hard days, as you can imagine. None of those things turned out to be true, but she suffered tremendous damage from that. She is back in Africa working now. Are you willing to follow God even when it's hard, through the hard times as well as the joyous times. Here's a picture of my family. I have five kids now. They're all doing well. I love them tremendously. There was a time about two years ago when I came down with a headache and fever and thought I had malaria, as often is the case. Started to treat myself, but I really didn't get much better. And One night I woke up with the worst headache I've ever had and a high fever. And the next morning I said, somebody should probably do a spinal tap, which they did. Came back and said, you have bacterial meningitis. So they started some treatment. And after a few days I started to feel a little better. I thought, well, this won't be so bad. I'll get over this. In fact, four days into it, there was a missionary friend who I promised I'd do a colonoscopy on before she went back to the States. So I went up with IVs hanging out of my arm and started to do this colonoscopy and thankfully Dr. Spears came in in the middle and she said is everything okay and I said no it's not I said you better finish this I need to go back to bed and I went to bed and I went way downhill and within 24 hours I thought I was going to die I couldn't think I couldn't talk to people I couldn't listen I couldn't do anything I could only lie flat on my back and for four weeks I could do nothing And God seemed to just strip every single thing away from me. 
In the early days of that, I said, God, there's all kinds of work to do. I, I have to get up and do this. And God said, be still and know that I am God. I said, well, that's not a very practical thing, Lord. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work there. To be still and know that I am God. And as days turned into weeks, and eventually I couldn't even pray. I couldn't do anything, and I couldn't think, and I knew I couldn't think. I felt on the verge of a seizure all the time. I couldn't sleep for a week. I couldn't do anything but lie there in bed in the dark and not have any lights and not have any sound and not have anything at all. And I thought, I don't know if my brain is ever going to recover. And I've seen many, many patients there who haven't recovered their faculties. And when my children would come in to see me and I'd barely open an eye, I thought, I'm going to leave these children orphaned. What, Lord, what are you doing? This doesn't make much sense. And the Lord stripped everything away from me and said, Are you willing to accept hardship as well as joy? During those days, as I was starting to come back through the fog, the Lord put some words in my heart. And I want to share those with you tonight. And I want to teach you a song and ask you to sing with me about that time in my life. So I'll sing this for you and ask you to then join me in this song. When you have emptied me of me And Jesus' face is all I can see Then I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you I will worship you I will worship you I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you Will you sing with me? When you have emptied me of me And Jesus' face is all I can see Then I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you I will worship you I will worship you I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you Will you trust God through difficult times? as well as joyful times. And finally, 
Are you willing to leave the results of your work to God? You might say, I can't do, I can't go to Africa. I can't go to Asia. I can't go overseas. I I can't even share with my neighbor. How am I going to do that? Are you willing to leave the results to God and let him be God? And you be an instrument used in his hands like Jonathan was used? He brought me another x-ray one day at Tenwick. I was doing an operation, and they brought this x-ray in and put it on the view box in the operating room. I said, is that a post-mortem picture? They said, no, no, he's alive. I said, well, then it, it must not be exactly what it looks like. It's interesting. I was at a conference in Brown University and shared this x-ray, and there was a radiologist in the crowd, and I said, what do you think of this x-ray? And he said, well, I, I see you have a pointer pointing at something, but it really looks like a normal x-ray to me. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> yeah, you see, the pointer's the problem. <laughs> there really shouldn't be a pointer right where that thing is. And I said, could you get a different view? Could you get me an AP view? So they shot that AP view, and the tip of it looked right in the middle. I said, you sure this guy is... Okay, they say, yeah, yeah, he's okay. He's over in casualty. And I went over to casualty to see him, and there's this arrow sticking out of the back of his neck. He looked like that before he went to sleep. And I said to him, are you really okay? He said, yeah. I said, you can move everything? He said, oh, yeah, I can walk. I'll get up and show you. I said, no, no, you just, just, you don't need to get up for me. Just stay there. And I said, you know, we're going to have to take you to the operating room and take out this arrow, because that's what it looked like. And, and, uh, I said, I don't really know if you're going to survive this. This is really not in my area of specialty. Uh, But there's nobody else to do this. So we're going to have to try to take that arrow out. I said, do you know Jesus? He said, no, I don't. I said, well, would you like to know him? Can we talk together and pray? He said, no, I don't want to know anything about Jesus. I said, can you just take the arrow out of my... I said, (laughs) I I really don't know if you're going to wake up from this. He said, well, I don't want to talk about Jesus. So... We went to the operating room. We worked on taking this thing out. And I had these great plans of doing a C2 laminectomy and getting around behind this thing and uh, carefully removing this. So we did. We went in and did a C2 laminectomy. And I could see this thing going through the dura. And I opened the dura, and it was right through the spinal cord, stuck into the vertebral body on the other side. I said, well, how are we going to get this out of here? Scratching my head and thinking and started to move this arrow just a bit to try to get around it when I came to realize that this thing had lacerated his his, uh, vertebral artery on its way in, and he started bleeding terribly. And, you know, nobody operates on vertebral arteries anymore. Radiologists deal with those with coils and gels and all kinds of things, but we didn't have any of those. And this thing was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, and our OR staff who work with me every day, one of them finally said, Doctor, you know, he's he's really bleeding a lot. I said, yeah, you know, I'm standing here with you. I can see that. If you have any ideas, I'm open to suggestions here. He said, I don't know what to do, but stop the bleeding. I said, yeah, yeah. Well, you do something. I've tried everything I know. I don't really know what to do. I tried suturing and bovying and packing and bone wax and everything, and you just can't get that thing to stop. And finally, he said, we're just going to pull this arrow out. I said, I'm probably going to kill this guy by doing this. And I just pulled the arrow out of his spinal cord. 
I said, we're going to have to pack this. And I sewed in the packs and closed it. And I said, this guy's never going to breathe again. I got all this pressure on his cervical spine. And the anesthetist says, no, he's breathing fine right now. He's breathing. I said, what? how can he be breathing? He's, uh, I'm pressing on his spinal cord at C2. They said, I don't know, but he's, he's breathing. I said, he'll never wake up from this. And I put him in the ICU and I said, when he stops breathing, don't call me because I can't do anything more. And I came in in the morning and he was sitting there with this endotracheal tube hanging out of his face looking at me and I said, my goodness. I said, you feel all right? He said, mm-hmm. I said, you want that tube out? Mm-hmm. And I pulled the tube out. I said, how do you feel? He said, well, I got this pain in my neck, kind of. Uh, but otherwise, not too bad. I said, I, yeah, yeah. I, when I pulled the arrow out, I noticed one barb that had been there was gone. And when we took another x-ray, it looked like this x-ray, which you see here. That's the AP view. And when you look at the lateral view, the next x-ray looks like this, and there's a little piece left. And I said, I'm not going back in there to take that out. I think Maybe we'll just leave that. That can stay forever. And they said, yeah, but you're going to have to take the packing out. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to do that. I talked to the man again. I said, you know, we're going to have to take you back to the operating room tomorrow, and I don't think you're going to survive this. I said, you've got to give your life to Jesus. He said, no, I don't want to hear about that. Just take the stuff out and I'll be okay. I said, oh, I don't think, you know, you're going to bleed again and I can't stop it. I've already tried. I cannot stop your bleeding. He said, well, I don't want to talk about Jesus. We took him back to the operating room and I said, I'm definitely not taking that piece of arrow out. I'll tell you that for sure. We got in there and I opened this up, took the packing out, ready to shield my eyes, and there was no bleeding. Stop. And I looked down at this spinal cord and saw a little piece of arrow sticking out from the spinal cord and just grabbed it with my fingers and took it out and set it aside and we closed up and washed everything out and put it in a drain and and Samson who's this man's name Samson woke up again I said Samson you should not be alive you got to give your life to Jesus he said no I'm not interested in Jesus I'm okay now the next day Samson developed terrible meningitis it was this dirty arrow. For some reason, the guy who shot him hadn't washed that arrow well, and he developed a very bad infection in his spine, and he went into a coma. And I put him on what was then our biggest antibiotic, and everybody said, you're wasting a lot of money. You really should stop that. He's not going to survive. And I said, but i, I got to try for this guy. He was in a coma for four days, and everybody said, just let him go. And on the fifth day, they called me and said, Samson's awake. I came in and fought Samson. I said, Samson, you have got to give... He said, okay, I'm ready now to talk to Jesus. <laughs> and I shared the gospel of Christ with Samson, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ that day. And Samson went home a week later looking like this picture. He had a little bit of weakness in one arm on one side of his finger. But other than that, he looked pretty good. Now, I used to go out quite a bit to the, to the villages and do some evangelism work and some uh, crusades and this sort of thing. Six months before Samson came, we had planned an outreach into a faraway village. We'd set this up with some of the local churches, and we were going to go out and present the gospel. As we were heading out there, they told me, you know, this is Samson's village we're going to. I said, you got to be kidding. It's a week after we discharged him. They said, no, this is where he's from. All right, and we got out there, and I noticed half of the huts were burned down. I said, "What happened here?" They said, "Oh, they had a big. There was a big fight here. People were shooting arrows left and right. That's how Samson got shot. Was in the middle of this whole thing. 
I said, really? I didn't know about that. And I said, well, I, I want to tell Samson's story to this group of people. So I started to share after we shared the gospel about Samson's story. And someone came up quietly behind me and they said, um, Samson started that whole fight? Uh, <laughs> it's probably not a good idea to talk about that. I said, no, Samson has given his life to the Lord. And I shared with those people, this man came in with an arrow through his spinal cord and he should never be alive. And after three operations, he's given his life to Jesus Christ and he is a new man today. And I said, would anybody here like to give their life to the Lord? And that day, 60 people came forward. 60 people came and gave their lives to Jesus and said, if Samson can come to know Jesus, he's a really bad guy, you know. If he can come to know Christ, surely I can. And they gave their hearts and their lives to Jesus. Samson shouldn't have lived. He certainly shouldn't have lived with me as his surgeon. There's no way he should have lived. But see, God had a different plan, far away greater than what I ever imagined. Bigger than I could have ever done, God had this in mind beforehand what he was going to do. And when Samson lived, nobody said, Oh, Dr. White, that was wonderful surgery. You really knew what you were doing. They said, Praise God, Samson lived. <laughs> Despite you, <laughs> he's alive. So that's absolutely right. God can use very imperfect vessels for his glory. Where are you today? Are you in somewhere USA? <laughs> are you saying, I know this is not where God wants me to be. I know this is not where God has called me to, but I just don't know where to go or how to start. Or I haven't seen the handwriting on the wall. So here I am. Why are you there? You're there because of the laws of inertia. That's why you're there. You're there because you're just going to stay there till something kicks you hard enough that you get rolling. And I hope and pray that God will get a hold of your heart and you'll say, He hasn't called me here and I see His work there and I've not seen the handwriting on the wall, but I am going to, with God's direction, go forward and follow His will and actively seek the will of God. And when I get moving understanding the best I can where God wants me to go, I'm going to ask Him to bless what I'm doing. And I know He will guide me and direct me and lead me. And He will even use me. As imperfect as I am and with all the faults that I have and with all the insecurities that I have, God will use even me. When are you going to do it? When are you going to just stop going to services and hearing altar calls and hearing about what's going on overseas and hearing what God is doing and you're going to say, Lord, okay, I haven't seen the handwriting on the wall, but I believe you are calling me and I am going to move forward. I'm going to take the hill with God's strength. And I'm going to trust that He will give me the strength to do it. 
You might be saying, how can I be sure in which direction to move? Fine, you want me to move? How do I know? By the desires of your heart and by the promises and intentions of God. Many people have a mixed up view of God. They say, you know, I would really like to be in an academic teaching program, so surely God will call me to the wildest part of Borneo and I'll be all on my own. Because God always does what we don't like, right? If you want to know God's will, think about what you enjoy and what you like, and he's going to call you to do the opposite. That's how we think God works, and that's foolishness. The scripture says if you are following God and you are a vessel of the Holy Spirit living within you, that God will give you the desires of your heart. So you look at your heart and where your desires are, and you look at the promises and the intentions of God, and you move in that direction. You say, well, what promises are you talking about? There's so many in Scripture that we could talk about. Just to name a few, in Jeremiah, he tells us that he has plans to prosper us. We often get prosper mixed up, don't we? We think prosper means something other than what it really means. But he has a hope and a future for us. Proverbs tells us to speak up for the poor. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. It is always God's will for you to defend the rights of the poor and needy. Always. And if you want to know what you can do for the Lord, then go defend the rights of the poor and the needy somewhere. That is always God's will. And if you're not doing it, you are not in God's will. He tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's God's will for us to go. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're new creatures in Christ and he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. It's always God's will that we be doing things to reconcile this world back to what God intended it to be. That is God's will for us. He tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to us. And many, many more promises in scripture that are all there for you to see what God is calling you to. When are you going to get up and do it? When are you going to get up and follow God's leading for you? God's will. Are you hoping it will drop out of the sky? Are you waiting for the handwriting on the wall? Will you 10 years from now or 20 years from now say, I think I might have missed the boat. I'm doing a lot of good things for God. I am serving the Lord where I am, but back in my younger days, I really wondered if God was calling me into full-time work and I didn't do it. Are you waiting for it to drop out of the sky on you? Or are you willing to take the hill for God? Are you willing to actively seek his will for your life and stand up this day and say, Lord, I will 
follow you. I don't know for sure what that means. I'm not entirely sure where the Lord is going to call me, but I believe he's calling me somewhere. And I'm going to actively seek his will for my life. Tomorrow morning, there's going to be an opportunity for you to come to this altar and commit your life to God in a somewhat formal way and say, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. I want you to lead me and you to guide me. But tonight, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the Lord that you're ready to do what he calls you to do through difficulty and through joy through uncharted waters, you will leave the results to him and you will follow him. And if you feel God calling you to that tonight, I want you to stand where you are as we close tonight in prayer and say, God, I am going to stand in front of everybody and tell God that I am ready to follow him. I am ready to take the hill for God and I don't know where that means but I'm going to get out of my seat and do it. And I trust that God will lead me. I want you to give some thought to that and give some prayer to that. And as we conclude tonight, you make this your altar and tell God that you are willing to follow him wherever he will take you. And I'm going to sing that song for you one more time as we close our eyes as we commit our lives to the Lord. And then I'm going to ask one of my partners from Tenwick Hospital to come, Dr. Mike Chubb, and close us in prayer after we sing. Make this time your time of dedicating your life to Jesus. When you have emptied me of me And Jesus' face is all I can see Then I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you When you have emptied me of me And Jesus' face is all I can see Then I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you I will worship you I will worship you I will trust you and rest in your peace And I will worship you Oh Jesus, your face is so beautiful thank you tonight for these words that you've given to us and the challenge and I thank you that you are a loving and gracious you're a great Lord 
I thank you for the privilege that it is to be a servant of yours and to be a part of your kingdom. I come to you tonight on behalf of many, many, many who have stood and they want to take the hill. And I pray that you would fill them with courage, that you would provide direction and wisdom. Your word says in James that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Father, we have lots of faults, but you're willing to give us wisdom without finding fault in us. And it will be given to him. And I ask, Father, tonight on behalf of so many who are seeking direction, many who've come to this conference uh, looking for a place to serve, a way to advance the gospel, and I ask that you keep your word and give them direction and courage uh, during the days ahead. Help them through discouragement, Father, uh, through doubt and through hardship, and provide for their needs. Lord, your kingdom is glorious. And I thank you. And I ask tonight that you would send out workers into your harvest field. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.